Loving Panams at Bhagwan's Lotus Feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai. I hope all of you are keeping well and keeping safe. It is my opportunity to join you all week after week to embark on this Triune Pilgrimage of the Gita series, a program where we go through the verses of the Bhagavad Gita one by one in as much detail as possible. And we have the reference of Swami's Gita Vaini and the many discourses that Swami has given on the Bhagavad Gita and discourses in general where he has spoken about the Bhagavad Gita as our backdrop, as our reference. We are in the second half of the sixth chapter. As we all know, the most important component in the sixth chapter is the portion about meditation, about dhyana. And when we talk about dhyana, you cannot but make references to the tool that we use to do meditation and that is the mind. The mind is not only the tool for meditation but it is also the entity that we are trying to discipline through the process of meditation. So in that sense, the relationship between the mind and meditation becomes very important and we have spoken about the various techniques physical techniques that are required to do meditation and what are the important uh, points that one has to keep in mind when we're talking about the mind when it's related to meditation. But we are going to come to the portion where Arjuna is going to ask some very relevant questions. But I think there is still time for that before we come to that. We will do a short summary of what we covered last time. And as I concluded last week, I promised to speak a little more about few of the concepts that Krishna speaks of in a couple of the shlokas. So we will do that also and then we will proceed forward. Last week we covered four verses. Verses 28, 29, 30 and 31. Verse 28, as we saw, is a modification of what was said in 27. In the 27th verse, Krishna says that the supreme happiness comes to the yogi in the 28th, he says, the yogi reaches the supreme happiness. And this contradiction, so to say, in successive verses is probably to drive the point that the yogi neither reaches it nor does the happiness come to him. Because the yogi only recognizes his or her nature as being ananda or that supreme bliss. Similarly, in the previous verse, Krishna had said, Brahma Bhutam, which means one becomes Brahman, but in the 28th verse he says Brahma Samsparsham. He comes in contact with Brahman. Again, 
two consecutive verses conveying two different meanings and this again is probably to drive the message that the yogi is himself brahman and there is no question of either becoming brahman or coming in contact with brahman and probably to drive that these are all different ways by which we explain the same thing but also subtly driving the point that none of these descriptions do justice to what we are talking of here the 29th verse is an important one where krishna says the yogi begins to see the same atman in every being and sees all beings in the atman and through this process he says an equal vision towards all is attained and moralis krishna summarizes this entire process of meditation by saying that this is the state that needs to be reached you recognize yourself to be the atman and then you go on to recognize the same atman in every being that you come across and eventually understanding that whatever is seen and unseen whatever is experienced pleasant or unpleasant everything is contained in this self and as we discussed last time this is not only a state to be reached by the jnani but it is also a concept or a tool that can be used for contemplation one can contemplate how it is the same self that is in each one right and i think these we discussed about a couple of weeks back when we were talking about what it means to place the mind in the self and so these are all tools of contemplation in that sense the next two shlokas krishna says the same thing whatever he has said so far but with reference to devotion in other words if you say that the object of meditation is a form of god that the sadhaka has chosen ishta devata as they say and that is out of love and devotion the sadhaka chooses one form to meditate upon right then the devotee must see that divinity everywhere and everything as contained in that divine aspect and in this verse krishna refers to himself as god as by saying yomam pashyati sarvatra sarvam cha mai pashyati he uses the word mam and mai which means those who see everything in me and those who see me in everything right this is one of the shlokas where krishna speaks as ishwara himself and in the 31st verse krishna takes this same idea forward by saying that such a yogi abides in him at all times in all circumstances so these were the verses uh, the summary of the verses that we covered last time and as i was mentioning these two shlokas 30 and 31 refer to the stages that a devotee must go through to make one's devotion perfect in fact swami speaks of three stages of devotion and for those of you who are interested if you wish to read further Swami has spoken about this in multiple discourses, but two discourses that probably I could suggest for you for further reading is a discourse that Swami delivered on the twelfth of September, nineteen eighty-nine, and the twenty-third of January, nineteen eighty-two. So you can find Swami speaking about these three stages of devotion there. But nevertheless, I'll give you a short summary of what Swami says there as well. Swami says the three stages are. सामान्य भक्ति और भौतिक भक्ति 
सुसामान्य और भौतिक भक्ति दुवत सामान्य मीन्स ऑर्डिनरी और रेगुलर भौतिका मीन्स वर्ल्डली सो स्वामी सेज दिस इज द फिस्ट स्टेज ऑफ डिवोशन एंड स्वामी गोज ऑन टू से दैट ऑल रिचुअल्स जपा तपा यज्ञ भजन्स इनफैक्ट वॉट एवर वी कैटेगराइज एज फॉलोइंग अंडर नव विद भक्ति ऑल कम अंडर दिस वर्ल्डली ऑर्डनरी टाइप ऑफ डिवोशन सामान्य भौतिक भक्ति द नेक्स्ट स्टेज इज एकांत भक्ति एकांत भक्ति इज इंडिविजुअलाइजिंग दैट ओमनी प्रेसेंट डिविनिटी एंड वर्शिपिंग दैट डिविनिटी इन वन स्पेसिफिक फॉर्म दैट इज वॉट इज एकांत भक्ति एकांत इट सेल्फ मीन्स इंडिविजुअलाइजिंग और फोकसिंग ऑन वन बट स्वामी वेरी क्लियरली स्टेट्स दैट दिस इंडिविजुअलाइजिंग ऑफ द ओमनी प्रेसेंट डिविनिटी इज अलोन नॉट एकांत भक्ति बट सींग दैट लॉर्ड एज बींग विद इन वन सेल्फ स्वामी सेज दैट इज द कंप्लीशन ऑफ एकांत भक्ति एंड स्वामी स्टेट्स दैट दिस इज द कलमिनेशन ऑफ वॉट वी बीन टॉकिंग अबाउट एज अटेनिंग चित्त शुद्धि प्योरिटी ऑफ द माइंड द प्रोसेस ऑफ प्योरिफिकेशन बिगिन्स विद सामान्य भक्ति राइट वॉट एवर यू टेक अप नामस्मरण भजन सेवा और नव विद भक्ति वॉट एवर यू रेफर टू दैट तपा एवरीथिंग दिस बिगिन्स दिस प्रोसेस ऑफ प्योरिफिकेशन ऑफ द माइंड एंड दैट कलमिनेट्स इन और अटेन्स परफेक्शन इन एकांत भक्ति and when we say purity of the mind it also refers to the stability of the mind so all that we were speaking about in the previous few verses that is referred to in this process that swami speaks about the mind by nature is outward moving right and it is unsteady and it is wavering but in this stage of ekanta bhakti the mind attains that perfect purity and stability in this state the lord who is the object of worship in whatever form now is visualized within the heart of the devotee right it could be any form of god it could be your worshiping mother aspect of god if you could be worshiping as vishnu you could be worshiping him as shiva you could be worshiping him as lord jesus or whatever form you have chosen to meditate upon in this ekant bhakti without any restlessness of the mind the mind will be able to visualize that divine aspect as being a resident of one's own heart and swami says this stage of ekanta bhakti will eventually lead to what is referred to as ananya bhakti the word ananya means no other or none else which means whatever is seen within and experienced as being within oneself is now experienced as the lord who is present all through and there is nothing else other than this form of the lord i'll just repeat that again if at all you've missed it ekanta bhakti is you're worshiping a lord in a certain form and you visualize that lord as being a resident of your own heart after that comes the stage of ananya bhakti where other than the lord you do not perceive anything so one has to transcend all names and forms likes and dislikes something as being pleasant something as being unpleasant to come to the state where one is able to see everything 
as an expression of that same divinity everything becomes only a container of that divinity and sadaka shows devotion towards or love towards and this stage is referred to as ananya bhakti where the bhakta does not see anything else and this is what krishna describes as being similar to the state of the jnani in the 29th verse krishna said sarvabhutastham atmanam sarvabhutani cha atmani ikshate in all beings he sees the atma he sees all beings in the atma and the same thing is rephrased and said yo mam pashyati sarvatra sarvam cha mai pashyati he who sees me in everything and all beings in me and this is the stage of no return in the sense where the bhakta is constantly abiding in the lord this is why swami would say bhakti should not be looked down upon it can give the highest state that a jnani can reach at the same time i think it is up to us to graduate from the stage of samanya bhakti and move on to ekant bhakti and ananya bhakti that one swami had called one of the families for an interview this was an interview that we had done some time back and uh, this family came to swami in the 50s so this was one of their early interactions with swami and these people had asked swami permission if they could go to tirupati when they leave prashantinilam because it was one of the practices in the family that every year they would make two pilgrimages one to tirupati and the other to tirutani another important temple town in south india so then they came in contact with swami so i think the third pilgrim center must have been prashantinilam so one day when swami had called them for an interview they asked swami permission that as we leave prashantinilam we'll go to tirupati have darshan and go back home so when they put this plea in front of swami swami asked them for what do you want to go to tirupati and they were a bit perplexed with this question they were not expecting that they said swami of course we want to go and have the darshan of venkateshwara we want to offer worship to him then swami said something which was very profound he said why do you want to go back to abcd swami said and then swami explained after crossing all such pilgrimages rituals worships after all those stages you have come to me now and now you're saying that you want to go back to kindergarten why do you want to go back to abcd swami said this is not to say that going to these temples is wrong or is considered to be a little lesser than coming to prashantinilam i don't think that is what swami intended at all but we must realize that such worship only comes in the realm of samanya bhakti and to the same family swami was saying on another occasion he said how long are you going to be stuck in this bhajans and nagar sankirtan and japams again this is not to say that bhajans and nagar sankirtan and all of these activities are in any way lower and must be given up these also have their role because samanya bhakti is also important in this process of purifying the mind but having found swami we must now endeavor to build that one to one relationship and graduate to that point of ekanta bhakti where we are able to recognize god as being dear to us and as being within our own heart right 
if you do not graduate to that then the, it would be a gross misuse of a very very beautiful opportunity right so going back to that family it's not that they never went to tirupati after that and it's not that swami forbade them from going to tirupati but swami wanted them to understand this that this opportunity right to love and develop love for god in this form right it is a opportunity that comes very very rarely and when it comes we must make strides to go towards ekant bhakti and ananya bhakti right so these two shlokas speak of that journey towards ananya bhakti and swami always would say that we must endeavor to come to the stage where we are able to see swami in each person that we are interacting with and this is something that swami tells everyone swami doesn't pick out a few of us and say that you are ready to graduate to samanya bhakti or you are ready to graduate to ananya bhakti so you should practice this no swami says that to everyone because we have been given this opportunity to graduate from samanya bhakti and go towards that state that state of ananya bhakti is one with the state of the jnani that krishna is describing right so this is one of the points that i wanted to make because for most of us it is easier to relate to this aspect of meditation that krishna is speaking about rather than sitting and meditating on the atman and i'm saying this from my own point of view some of you might have different views on that but for us who have been with swami who have had the opportunity to have swami's darshan this seems to be a more accessible means of getting towards the state that krishna is talking about so we must be prepared to move from the samanya bhakti towards the state of ananya bhakti so those were the verses that we covered last time and that was a small discussion i wanted to have about these three stages of devotion we will go to the next shloka this is the 32nd shloka as always very beautifully rendered by brother sham we we'll listen to it in his voice i'll give you a brief meaning of that and then we will discuss in detail what krishna says there आत्मौपम्येन सर्वत्र समं पश्यति योर्जुन सुखं वा यदि वा दुखं सयोगी परमो मतः ओ अर्जुन दैट योगी इज कंसीडर्ड द बेस्ट हु जजेस व्हाट इज हैप्पीनेस एंड सॉरो in all beings by the same standard as he would apply to himself so that is the 32nd shloka now this shloka can be seen in two different ways and different commentators explain it in different ways but if you ask me both of them have relevance both make sense in the context of this portion of the gita and those multiple interpretations come from the multiple meanings for the word atma that we have spoken about even earlier as we have seen atma is not only used to refer to the divine self but it is also used to refer to the smaller self or when you're saying myself or oneself so even in that context atma is used so in this shloka krishna uses the word or uses the phrase atma aupamyena the word upama means comparison or drawing a parallel with 
reference to something. So, Atma Aupamyena means with the self as being the reference. So, when we see the rest of the shloka, we will see what this means. Krishna says, Sarvatra Samampashyati Yo Arjuna O Arjuna, He sees equality everywhere. Sarvatra, everywhere, Samampashyati, sees the same. And same as what? Atma Aupamyena what he sees in oneself. So in that sense, this is an extension of reiteration of what Krishna has been telling so far. He sees the same self that he sees in oneself, now in all the beings that he comes across. Right? That's what Krishna had said in a couple of verses back. So clearly this statement is conveying the same Atma Aupamyena Sarvatra Samambashyatiyaha Keeping his self as the reference he sees everyone equally because now he sees the same self in everyone. But the next statement kind of extends the idea in such a manner that it could also be interpreted in a more practical way, in a more approachable way. Krishna says, Sukham va yadi va dukham Be it sukha or dukha. How does this change the nature of the first statement? where I said with reference to the Atma or with reference to the Self. We are talking of a stage of equality that has come past Sukha and Dukha. right? Only when the aspirant has gone to a stage where he does not be bothered about Sukha and Dukha, we are talking about the sense of equality. So after that equanimity comes, this equanimity of seeing same Atma and all, all in that Atma, right? So by talking about Sukha and Dukha, I think Krishna is making us think of the other meanings for Atma as well in the term Atma Aupamyena. Which means, forget about the ultimate state where one has the vision of oneness that we will eventually reach. right? Through this effort, eventually that state will be reached. But the path to that is also equality in vision where you judge others sukha and dukha on the basis of what is sukha and dukha for yourself in other words this is the basis of goodness itself this is the basis of the idea of dharma itself do unto others what you would wish others do unto you right this is the very basic precept of goodness itself. And then Krishna says, Saha yogi paramo mataha. That yogi is considered the highest. So the first statement alone is probably a reiteration of what has been said so far. The second statement can be seen in two ways. One is that this yogi sees sukha and dukha as being the same because now his reference is the Atma. And the Atma is in all, is in everything. And Sukha and Dukha becomes meaningless, right? The dichotomy becomes meaningless for this person. I don't see someone as being poor. I don't see someone as being in pain or disease. All of those are also included in what we refer to as names and forms. And however compelling the names and forms may be, they are an illusion. And the true yogi will not be deluded by it. So, Sukham va. Yadiva 
दुखम बीट हैप्पीनेस बीट सोरो सर्वत्र समम पश्यति यह ही सीज ओनली सेमनेस एवरीवेयर व्हाई बिकॉज नाउ ही सीज विद रेफरेंस टू द आत्मा नाउ आत्मा औपम्येन सो दिस इज द प्रोबेबली यू कुड कॉल द एब्सोल्यूट एक्सप्लेनेशन ऑफ दैट श्लोका the other is what i just mentioned in terms of dharma or the idea of goodness because krishna is again mentioning sukha and dukha like in the previous shlokas this could also be seen as a means of describing the jnani in such a manner that it gives certain practical hints for the sadhaka all flaws in human nature be it greed jealousy hatred are nothing but different forms of inequalities right inequalities that arise from the fact that we have a different standard when it comes to ourselves compared to how we interact with others so i would say this and i am sure we discussed this earlier also the whole idea of gita is based on this particular problem that we all face we know what is right and wrong we all have the idea of discrimination and what is to be done and what is not to be done but when some form of self interest steps in then the discrimination gets distorted that is why all forms of corruption wrongdoings cheating are all nothing but selfishness and self interest swartham and svaprayojanam distorting the idea of what should be done and what should not be done right and that's why swami says everyone has a conscience everyone knows what is right and wrong but when you're not able to suppress this swartham and swaprayojanam you end up taking to the immoral path or the adharmic path the more i am able to treat all others needs the same way as i treat my own needs i will be seen as a good person right you look around you see anybody whom you would refer to as a good person you will be able to see this nature whatever is good for them they would want the same for others right the way they want to be respected they will respect others the way they want to be treated kindly they will treat others right but at some point there will be a confusion as long as we hold on to this idea of i am this small self however good that person might be in fact just like it has happened or in the case of arjuna as a warrior he must have fought many battles he must have killed so many people in the course of battle that is acceptable given that he is a kshatriya he is a warrior and they must have been whoever has died at arjuna's hands they must have been someone's grandfather someone's cousin someone's husband someone's guru somebody's family but he never hesitated at any of those times when he had to fight but when it was his his family when it was his own guru now he is in doubt whether this is right or wrong right so even someone as noble as arjuna has his discrimination deluded because we all are self centered by nature and this point we all are self centered right but this equal vision of treating all others interests just as i would treat my own interest becomes perfect when it comes to this state of atma bhava when i see the atma alone 
because there is a perfect sense of oneness now when there is oneness who will i be greedy of who will i be jealous of right who will i try to hurt to benefit myself a question that some people ask is so if i have this atmic vision or atma bhava if i were to do something wrong do you say that it will not affect me what if a self realized person commits a crime like murder the source of all crimes the source of all mistakes anger greed hatred is actually this ego or this idea that i am the small self which is separate from everybody else when one begins to look at this entire world through the reference of the atma atma aupamyena when where is then when one is looking at the whole world like that then where is the question of harming another for one's own interest because there is no one's own interest someone else's interest that is why a jnani is also a dharmic person he also is you don't even have to mention that he is automatically a moral person but for the jnani there is no dilemma that's the difference if you look at a good person his idea of morality probably has a moral dilemma and every time there is a dilemma he chooses the right but in the case of anyani there is no dilemma at all because there is nothing like self interest and others interest goodness and equality become natural in the case of anyani i will not discriminate between my right leg and my left leg isn't it or my right ear and my left ear because i know that both are equally mine there is no question of me benefiting one and harming the other so though this shloka can be seen in the ultimate sense i think it can also be considered as a means to achieve that state of equality as long as there is sukha and dukha what is happiness for you and what you strive to achieve also try to help others achieve the same what is painful to you don't put others through it what is insulting to you try not to put others through it and if i may add a small point which of course has to be considered only from the point of view of what we are discussing here abusing one's own body or self extreme self abnegation also becomes a sign of this inequality born of ego because if i'm going to give pain to my body and say it is okay it is after all my body that also becomes a sign of you seeing this body as being yours and the rest of it as being not yours right so that also is not equality of course as i said this is a little more nuanced because this will have a conflict with our idea of selflessness because when we still have body consciousness when we speak about selflessness we only speak about caring less for our body and caring more for others being right that's the whole idea that's why i'm saying that this is a little more nuanced but i'm just mentioning it to say there cannot be equality only with selflessness to a certain extent body consciousness also has to be reduced and only then the equality will be more true which means you should be able to treat your own body also as another body just like how i will not harm your body because pain is pain for everybody in the same manner i will hesitate to put my own body even through pain in the name of saying that is after all my body it's all right right let me also add another point which is more or less an extension also because krishna just spoke about bhakti 
In the previous shloka, he had said, "Whoever is able to see me in all and all in me, so yogi mai vartate." He said, "That yogi remains in me, sarvatha vartamano api." Whatever be that person's state of existence. So when Krishna speaks of sukham va yadiva dukham, these are different states of being, right? These different states, which Krishna referred to as sarvata vartamano pi. Even if I were to have the vision of Atma, or I am able to see Swami in everyone, situations of ups and downs will come, right? I may not see them as being pleasant and unpleasant now. Now that I have gone past sukha and dukha, but they will come in the course of life. But in all those states, the devotee still, Krishna says, will remain rooted in Him and Him alone. Sayogi, mai vartate. He will abide in me, whatever be the situations He comes across. Let us, for a moment, look at it from the point of view of a devotee. As we all will be able to relate to that more, I'm going to reiterate that a little more here. What is sukha and dukha? We all have a certain level of happiness already, right? When nothing goes wrong, everything is happening smoothly in life. That itself is a form of sukha, right? You don't need anything more than that. Right now, if nothing is troubling you, nothing is bothering your mind, you are right now happy. You might not be jumping and laughing, but you are having sukha. right so that itself is a form of sukha then when some happy tidings come by it adds to that sukha and then we feel elated right when something bad happens it takes away from the sukha and then we feel bad right and that's why we feel restless but someone who recognizes the oneness or unity with the atma and the atma is limitless nothing can add to the sukha of such a person and nothing can take away from that sukha it is like the salinity of the ocean right the rivers coming into it does not dilute its salinity evaporation does not increase it either because the ocean is so vast that what comes in and what goes is so small compared to its vastness so the highest state is when there is union between the devotee and the lord right as we have been saying so in so many words in the so many verses that you've come across there is no sense of lacking so there is no change of mental state when sukha and dukha comes because nothing is good enough to add to the state of sukha the devotee is in nothing is good enough to remove anything from the state of sukha that the devotee already is in but even for the devotee who looks upon the lord as one's greatest possession forget about merging right again merging will happen when it happens even considering that i have my lord and that is my greatest blessing i think we all have and we all can relate to that sense you know in all this journey through life swami i have found you and you are my greatest possession and that is good enough for me right even such a devotee can practice this or will not be elated when some simple achievements are had right i win some award or something happens to me or somebody gives me some money for example when i am a millionaire i will not run after a few pennies 
and if i'm really able to remind myself constantly of what a great fortune what wealth i have found in swami all other small achievements will make will add nothing to this sukha that i already have similarly small reverses in life will mean nothing to me because compared to what i have already got if i lose a few million rupees what am i going to lose in that i have after all found my swami right so we don't have to wait till we get gnana to look beyond sukha and dukha all that is required is we must remind ourselves constantly what is important in life and what we have already found through this path of devotion so i just wanted to mention that as i said it's an extension but since we relate to devotion more i hope i'm speaking on behalf of all of you listeners also when i say this i thought it is important to speak of it from this angle as well now we'll go to the next shloka shloka number 33 where after a long silence arjuna is going to speak up and put forth a doubt that has been gnawing his heart so we'll listen to verse number 33 i'll give you a brief meaning of that and then we'll discuss arjuna uvacha योयम योगस्वया प्रोक्ता साम्येन मधुसूदन येतस्याहन्नपश्यामी चंचलत्वात्स्थितिं स्थिराम अर्जुना सेड ओ मधुसूदना this yoga that has been spoken of by you as sameness i do not see its steady continuance owing to the restlessness of the mind so this is the 33rd verse arjuna was listening very patiently till now but now he breaks his silence and asks this question whatever krishna is explaining is very easy to understand right well if i am able to explain it to you it means i was able to at least to a certain extent understand the concept and to a certain extent i am able to explain it to you and i am sure even as i am explaining some of you are understanding it too i am hoping most of you are understanding it so the idea about what happens when you see god in everyone or you see start seeing everything in god or how when you feel complete there is no sukha and dukha all the idea of what it is to place the mind in the self that we have discussed a couple of weeks back all of this can be understood can be explained can be understood and it makes sense to us right i hope it's making sense because when i read this it makes sense to me because this is our everyday life this is what happens to us how do we feel happy how do we feel unhappy and when we start associating ourselves with something which is greater smaller things do not trouble us anymore right these are all practical mental things that happen and it's observable our problem is not comprehending the concept that krishna is saying here though we may not be able to understand it directly but through the simple analogies and examples that krishna is giving and vedanta often gives through the upanishads and some of these as i said small experiences that we can observe in our own mind when something happens an object that gave us happiness becomes an object of sadness so we know that happiness and sadness is not these are all 
Vedanta, as I've said many times in the course of this program and even in other shows, is Vedanta always makes references to some of the experiences that you have in everyday life. It is not simply some mumbo jumbo that you have no idea about. It's not purely about visions and things like that. It is making references to everyday experiences that we have, right? So, through all of these explanations, explaining this or comprehending this concept is not a problem. My problem is steadiness, isn't it? I can probably practice this for a week, but the moment some sorrow strikes me, everything goes up in vapors, isn't it? I'm sure many of us have experienced being in some kind of what you refer to as a spiritual euphoria, right? For most devotees, when they first come in contact with Swami, when they come into Swami's fold, there is that spiritual euphoria that lasts for a few weeks or a few months that you feel that there's nothing more for me to achieve. I've got this. The first strike of sorrow, then everything goes up in vapors, right? There's this uh, episode that one of my classmates was once narrating that he was in the interview room with Swami and uh, in some context in a discussion, Swami was asking him to do something. I don't recall the details of that. And he submitted to Swami and with very genuine feeling, right? It was not something very superficial. Very genuinely, he said, Swami, I don't have any other relationship. Swami is everything for me. Swami is my mother. Swami is my father. And I want to be only with Swami. I don't want anything else. So Swami kept quiet and Swami blessed him. And I think the next day or a couple of days later, when Swami was coming for darshan, this boy got up and he said, Swami, my parents are here. I would be very happy if Swami calls them for an interview. And instantly Swami looked at him and Swami said, Hey, just some time back you told me I don't have anybody, no mother, no father, everything is Swami. What happened to that? The reality is, as I was saying, that that student was saying that everything is Swami genuinely. But our problem is the mind does not remain in that state. The mind is fluctuating, right? And more so, the most problematic thing is when something unsettling happens, a sorrow comes away, a disaster comes away, right? It disturbs us and then all of this gyan simply evaporates, right? Or we will read something which is deeply philosophical and when we are reading it, you're so convinced about it. And there are some people who have told this about this program as well. You know, when you're speaking about all of this, it seems so very convincing and uh, we feel so energized. But the next day when we wake up, everything seems to be gone. Right? Nothing needs to happen also. right? Just the next morning when you get back to your regular work, everything seems to have gone. How many times we have seen all of this happen to us? It seems like our mind has a mind of its own, isn't it? It is like we wearing a pair of gloves and... The glove is supposed to do whatever the hand inside the glove does, right? The way I move my finger, the glove is supposed to move in that same manner. But the glove that I'm wearing seems to be doing things of its own. It's picking up things that I don't want to pick up. It is throwing things that I don't want to throw. It's throwing it at people whom I don't want to throw it at. How can you do what you want to wearing such a pair of gloves? The mind seems to be like that. And that's why Arjuna interrupts Krishna's discourse with a question. He says, O Madhusudana Krishna, I am yoga. This yoga, 
यह त्वया प्रोक्त विच यू हैव जस्ट स्पोकन अबाउट विच यू हैव जस्ट टॉट साम्यन एज सेमनेस और एज इक्वल विशन बिकॉज फाइनली इट ऑल कम्स डाउन टू दैट राइट द एंड ऑफ ऑल दैट कृष्णा स्पोक अबाउट मेडिटेशन एंड फोकस एंड याना कम्स डाउन टू द लास्ट फ्यू श्लोकस वी कवर्ड वेर ई सेज यू सी नथिंग बट द सेल्फ और ईश्वरा एवरीथिंग एंड एवरीवेयर सो इट ऑल कम्स डाउन टू दैट इक्वल विशन वेन वी स्पीक ऑफ इट इन प्रैक्टिकल टर्म्स सो अर्जुना इज सेंग दिस योगा दैट यू स्पोक अबाउट ओ कृष्णा एस सेमनेस ये तस्थितिम स्थिराम दिस कंटिन्यूस स्टेडीनेस अहम न पश्यामी आई एम नॉट एबल टू सी इट ये तस्थितिम स्थिराम कंटिन्यूस स्टेडीनेस ऑफ वॉट यू हेव स्पोकन अहम न पश्यामी आई एम नॉट एबल टू सी इट चंचलत्वात वाई एम आई नॉट एबल टू सी इट एज रियालिटी एज मी बींग एबल टू हैव इट चंचलत्वात बिकॉज ऑफ रेस्टलेसनेस दो ही डजन से इट इट मीन्स द रेस्टलेसनेस ऑफ द माइंड इज इंट इट सो अर्जुना इज मेकिंग इट क्लियर आई अंडरस्टैंड द आइडिया बिहाइंड इक्वानिमिटी सेमनेस दैट यू हैव एक्सप्लेन सो फार ओ कृष्णा बट आई कैन सी हाउ इट कैन बिकम अ कंटिन्यूस एक्सपीरियंस because my mind is constantly unsteady i am not able to see me practicing what you are saying constantly right that's a very beautiful phrase that you use etasya sthitim sthiram to have it steady and to have it continuously continuous steadiness sthitim sthiram this attitude of seeing swami in everyone is okay but how can i see swami all the time in all people in all circumstances however pleasant or unpleasant that person may be that becomes difficult for me right that's a very important question that arjuna is asking thank god arjuna asked the question right otherwise we would have got carried away by the discourse and say a oh, wonderful discourse thankfully arjuna asked the question because the problem is all uh, is as much it's our problem as it is arjuna's problem it's a universal problem right If Arjuna is saying that his mind is chanchalatvat, he says because of his restlessness of the mind. What do I speak about the restlessness of my mind, right? So thanks to Arjuna that he asked this question. He stopped Krishna midway and said, "This is my problem." And thanks to this, Krishna is going to give a beautiful explanation, which is very very important to us. But of course, I think that explanation will have to wait till next week because there is one more shloka here. again a very very significant shloka this is continuation of arjuna's question we'll listen to that we'll have a discussion about that maybe we'll have to conclude with that in this week's program so we'll listen to it verse number 34 of the 6th chapter these are arjuna's words chanchalam himana krishna प्रमाथिबलवृढ़ तस्याग्रह मे वायोरीवसुदुष्को कृष्ण द माइंड इज इंडीड अनस्टडी डिस्ट्रक्टिव स्ट्रांग एंड ऑब्स्टिनेट टू कंट्रोल इट आई बिलीव इज वेरी डिफिकल्ट एज टू कंट्रोल द विंड 
So that is verse number 34 and this probably is one of the most famous shlokas among the many shlokas that are Arjuna's dialogues, right? Many shlokas that Krishna says and are very important and significant. But this is one of Arjuna's shlokas which is very famous. And that is because what he is saying here is so accurate. In fact, as Swami says in Gita Vahini, Krishna even appreciates this definition of the mind that Arjuna is giving as being very, very apt and accurate. He says, Oh Arjuna, you have understood the nature of the mind quite well. Right? That is what Krishna Swami says is Krishna's response to what Arjuna is saying in the shloka. And each of the adjectives that Arjuna uses is very, very apt in the description of the mind. If there is anyone who doesn't agree with some of these descriptions that he has given, some of these adjectives that Arjuna has used, I think it only means that we have not made serious attempts to control the mind. Why? Because the mind is like a wild horse. Right? This is an analogy which is often given. The mind is always is equated to a wild horse. I've had the opportunity to see some wild horses in the wild, in the open. Right? If you go to some of these beautiful Himalayan plains, you will find many of these wild horses roaming around without any owners or without anybody riding it. If you look at them, they seem to be very calm. Right? And you wonder why do they call them wild horses? Because they seem very calm, they're very friendly, they're moving around by themselves, they're just grazing calmly. They're called wild because they are untamed. The moment you try going near them, try mounting them, then you will see why they are called wild. Because that is when they actually become wild. So till you let them do what they want, they seem to be absolutely pleasant and lovely and friendly and, and they're good, they're peaceful. The moment you want to rein them, you will see their true nature. And same is the case with the mind as well. As long as you let the mind do whatever it wants, it will appear like it's very calm, it's very peaceful. But when you start wanting to do something worthwhile with the mind, when you want to discriminate and want to lead a life in a certain manner, then the mind will start showing its true colors. It will start showing why it is wild, right? But in one way, the mind is slightly different from this analogy as well. Because the mind is not merely a wild horse that is roaming around. It is like a wild horse that is yoked to the chariot of our life, right? If it's a wild horse and it has got nothing to do with me, I can let it go its way. But my chariot of my life is yoked to this wild horse and my life depends on me being able to control it and making it do what I want it to do and that's the trouble. So the bottom line is the mind is difficult to control. And that's what Arjuna said in the previous verse as well. Such ideals that we are talking about, ideal concepts of you have to see Swami in everybody. Whoever you see serve, you should see Swami in that person. It's so beautiful, I really wish I could do that, right? But it is not easy, it doesn't come naturally and even if it comes naturally, it only seems to be coming in flashes of inspiration, not as a continuous steady nature. But steadily holding on to that, etasya sthitim sthiram, that seems to be close to impossible because he says that in this verse through the description of the mind, he says, 
चंचलम ही मनक कृष्णा ओ कृष्णा दिस माइंड इज वेरीली रेस्टलेस चंचलम इट इज कॉन्स्टेंटली मूविंग फ्रॉम वन टू दी अदर एस वी डिस्क्राइब आई थिंक इन वन ऑफ द्री और फोर वर्सेज बैक ऑल्सो कृष्णा स्पीक्स ऑफ द नेचर ऑफ द माइंड इट्स कॉन्स्टेंटली इन द स्टेट ऑफ फ्लक्स चंचलम ही मनक कृष्णा this chanchalatvam if you look at it and i think we discussed this even in the context of that shloka is the very nature of the mind the mind is made very alert to external stimuli and it is made that way so that it can protect the individual from danger that's what you see it's a very critical quality required in most of the animals but then this alertness itself becomes a nature of being distracted or distractedness and that makes the mind restless and added to that the mind not only becomes alert to external stimuli through the senses when you hear a sound when you get a fragrance or when you see an object which is a sign of danger not only is the mind constantly open to all these inputs from the senses the mind also has internal stimuli of the memories close your eyes for 5 minutes and try to meditate 10 years back what happened will come up from the mind right one week back what food you ate will memories of that will come or three weeks back the fight that you had with your neighbor will come up in your mind why not only external stimuli the mind gets disturbed and restless even from stimuli from the memory then he goes on to say pramadhi balavad dridham pramadhi means it is a tyrant it torments the person and it can become very very demanding balavad dridham it is strong and it is obstinate aham manye arjuna says aham manye i think or i feel tasya nigraham controlling of it nigraha means control tasya nigraham control of it control of the mind vayuho eva sudushkaram is as difficult as controlling the wind if you observe almost all of the mind's negative emotions are actually spontaneous anger comes spontaneously jealousy comes spontaneously if you don't like some person and he or she comes before you instantly the mind becomes restless you don't have to command the mind to do something in all of these cases and when we speak of controlling the mind it seems like the mind is not subservient to you at all it seems like it is pramathi it is a tyrant it is not a servant right a servant will wait take orders from you and then execute it but this mind does not seem to be waiting for my orders at all the moment it wants to get angry it's already got angry if it wants to desire something it's already desiring it it is not waiting for my command and as i said it becomes more and more restless when you make an attempt to control it they said if you go into a hall full of an audience and you tell them no i want all of you to do only one thing nobody should think of an elephant what happens the next moment everybody is thinking of an elephant why because the mind is like that mind does not wait but does not stop and ask you so the next 5 minutes what can i think of how wonderful it would be if the mind is going to take orders from us like that 
no the mind instantly jumps into some thought or the other right take for example the emotion of sorrow none of us want to be sorrowful i don't think any of us want to be unhappy in fact all our life we are only trying to resist sorrow we are going after happiness and we are trying to secure our happiness but if i don't want to be unhappy why am i being unhappy why am i not being happy most of the time no one is forcing us to be sad isn't it it is we who become sad the mind becomes sad because we might say that but i don't have this this event did not happen or this disaster happened but then there are always a million reasons for the mind to be happy and eventually if you take a stock of your life and the mind it is only a question of choice what do you want to concentrate on do you want to concentrate on happy things or do you want to concentrate on sad things but even now if i decide to be happy how is it that i am not able to be happy probably end with a small episode that happened when uh, it's a, actually a long episode i'll make it very brief this devotee from the united states my name james sinclair we all know his story he was one of the richest people in the united states and he had these phenomenal experiences where sami appeared to him in his living room not once but twice i think once as shirdi baba and later as swami and when he eventually appeared imagine he is living in his plush apartment in new york in his locked room he is sitting and he is praying to god and he is crying out to god and inside the locked apartment in his room swami appears and swami says come to me right and that's how he eventually tries to figure out who swami is and then he comes to prashantinilayam and when in prashantinilayam swami gives him an interview right and in the interview swami asks him will you do something for me imagine the world's richest man swami is saying will you do something for me and he was probably ready to give anything and everything to swami swami just had to ask but what did swami tell him swami said i have given you everything i have given you a good family i have given you all the success in the world i have given you so much wealth swami said but you are not happy Swami said be happy that is what i want from you and once when james sinclair was speaking to us in trai brindavan in swami's presence he said anything would have been easier than this command that swami gave him because why it is so spontaneous what the mind wants to do when it wants to be sad it is sad i am not able to command it to be happy right and that is the nature of the mind so how to ensure the steadiness of this mind all of what krishna has spoken so far is all about keeping the mind steady how do i achieve that and that is the most important question that arjuna is asking and krishna is going to answer that in the verses that are going to follow and that is why dear listeners do join me again next week because i am sure there is nobody out there who does not want an answer for this question that arjuna is raising so we'll come back again next week when we resume this pilgrimage of the gita series we will listen to that beautiful simple straightforward answer that krishna gives for this question of how to steady the mind i most humbly offer this effort at swami's lotus feet and i thank you all for your very patient listening and for your company till i meet you all next week take care keep safe jai sai ram